For scholars of borderlands, these fuzzy regions between empires, or areas adjacent to hardened boundaries between them, it doesn't take much to get us droning on about how central, no pun intended, peripheries and edges are to the actual centers of state power. It is at the edges of control where states often end up exerting their strongest efforts to impose control, and this often applies beyond nation-states to communities, religions, cultural institutions, and virtually any other conceptualized group. Welcome to Writing Westward. I'm your host, Brennan Rensink. This month we talk about how the edges of empire matter, and how the competition over them especially matters to the people actually living there, whether indigenous to the region or recent migrants. We do this with Andrea Geiger in her new book, Converging Empires, Citizens and Subjects in the North Pacific Borderlands, 1867 to 1945. Thanks for listening. For new listeners, allow me to take a moment to explain a bit about writing westward and myself. Each episode features a conversation with people writing about the North American West, historians, journalists, novelists, poets, scientists, sociologists, and others. By showcasing their work, I hope to spark your curiosity to think more deeply about the region, its lands and environments, and the histories and experiences of the peoples who call it home. If a writer or topic intrigues you, you can find links to their work in the show notes or at writingwestward.org. And if you have a moment, please do subscribe, share links with friends, leave us a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you're using to listen, follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and send in some feedback. Writing Westward is supported by the Charles Red Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University, where I, Brendan Rensink, serve as Associate Director and an Associate Professor of History. For better or worse, this is a one-man operation. With me playing role of host, producer, sound engineer, publicist, and everything else. All tasks for which I have no training. But I am passionate about the North American West, so this difficult work is well worth the excuse to read more books and talk to interesting people. At the end of each episode, I'll include a little bit more information about me and my scholarship, and about the Red Center, our public programming and projects, and funding opportunities that you could apply for. With that, let me introduce a little bit more about today's guest, and why we're talking to them. Andrea Geiger is Professor Emerita of History from Simon Fraser University in British Columbia. With an international childhood spent in Japan, the Netherlands, India, and elsewhere, she had a successful first career as an attorney, culminating with a position representing the Confederated Tribes of the Colville Reservation in northeastern Washington state. Inspired by her upbringing, she then earned a PhD in history from the University of Washington. Her first book, Subverting Exclusion, Trans-Pacific Encounters with Race, Caste, and Borders, 1885-1928, was published by Yale University Press in 2011. Today we talk about her recent and second book, Converging Empires, Citizens and Subjects in the North Pacific Borderlands, 1867-1945, published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2023. In Converging Empires, Geiger focuses on how indigenous peoples of the Pacific Northwest borderlands and Japanese migrants to those regions negotiated the legal regimes of the competing British or Canadian and American empires. She traces interactions between these two groups and the varied ways in which settler states imposed restrictions on them and how they strategized to pursue economic ventures around or through them. It is delightfully messy and complex history. Multiple nation-states, immigrants, indigenous peoples, 
all vying for power or control in a region at the bordered periphery of those imperial projects. Thankfully, Geiger grounds her analysis in individuals and narratives that humanize these histories, and by so doing, make them much more legible. Her success in making sense, not only to herself, but to readers, of an exceptionally complicated set of histories is to be celebrated. For those interested in the North American West, her book is an excellent demonstration of how the edges of empire exert tremendous influence on broader national or continental histories. And lest we forget, the West as a whole often acted as one such edge. Geiger's work on the North Pacific borderlands has valuable insights that resonate with innumerable broader, quote-unquote, Western histories. Andrea Geiger, welcome to Writing Westward. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I should let listeners know, just so they can understand my deep jealousy uh, of where you're recording from, uh, out in the wilds of Vancouver Island. Yep, um, I'm on Vancouver Island. I'm not sure it's exactly wild, but perhaps wild compared to many urban centers in North America. Yep, and beautiful place, green, not far from the ocean. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if that jealousy will come through in the tone of my voice um, <laughs> over the course of this interview, but if it does, that's, that's why. <laughs> I want to start with a really broad question before jumping into the specifics of your book and a question about uh, the borderlands of the North American West. This is a podcast about the region broadly, but why should people who are interested in the West as a region be particularly attentive to the things that are happening kind of at the edges of it? What happens on the edges that is important to the rest of the area? I think there's a few different things to think about in this context. And first of all, what are the edges for everybody else um, are not necessarily the edges for the people that live there. And I think if we want to look at history from an indigenous perspective, or for example, from the perspective of people who arrived in the West from across the Pacific, rather than from across the continent and before that from across the Atlantic, um, we have to be willing to center those parts of the world um, in the way we think about this history. There's also ways, and I tried to get into them in the book, uh, that developments along the Pacific coast um, impact policy that's being crafted back in Ottawa, in Washington, D.C., etc., both during the late 19th, early 20th century, and then, um, of course, later during the Second World War. Yeah, I mean, we often think of it uh, inverse, right, that the, the cores of power are dictating everything to the edges, but we have examples where uh, mm -hmm. It's, it's the borderlands kind of dictating policy backwards. Exactly, yeah. And a huge example uh, is the forced removal of um, Japanese Americans, Japanese Canadians from the coast during the Second World War. And before that, the constraints on access to citizenship that are imposed uh, in the United States, in Canada, they are allowed to become British subjects because the treaty between Great Britain and Japan prompts what people in DC want to do. But what people in DC do end up being able to do is 
um, to persuade the Privy Council in London, which is then the final arbiter of cases arising out of Canada, to uphold legislation in BC that denies people of Asian ancestry um, and people who are categorized as, quote, Indians under the terms of Canada's Indians Act no vote. And so these are profound ways in which ideas about citizenship, about who is a subject, British subject, and entitled to reside in Canada are shaped. And uh, in Canada, it also has implications for other parts of the British Empire. And that sometimes explains why uh, the Privy Council, for example, upholds uh, BC policy with regard to excluding people of Asian ancestry from the vote. So not just um, naturalized British subjects of Asian ancestry, uh, Japanese ancestry or Chinese ancestry, um, but also their descendants. And um, so it's really race-based. It's not based on having been born in a foreign country and perhaps um, you know, being vulnerable, at least, to the argument that you're not up to speed enough on cultural traditions in North America to um, be able to exercise the vote responsibly, because these are the kinds of arguments being made at the time. Yeah, and this is happening, a lot of it, yeah, it's happening at the edges where there's these encounters between, exactly. uh, between peoples. So you argue that uh, in these Pacific Northwest borderlands, uh, and it's kind of what you've kind of just been explaining, that this is often the location where the settler states are doing a lot of the work of exercising state power, right? In terms, like, as you said, in terms of who belongs, who doesn't belong, citizenship, who gets to become part of kind of the body politic. Um, uh, is there something else unique about, is it just that, because that's where uh, these other, these marginalized peoples are? because they're on the edges, not back in Ottawa and DC as much? Or is there something else going on that makes the edges uh, the prime location for, for these exercises of state power? It's one of the things that's going on, but um, it's also a place where in many instances, state power isn't yet really solidified during the period that I'm writing about. So late 19th, first half of the 20th century. Um, and when you compare it, for example, with um, the southern border of the United States, uh, which is uh, much more carefully policed, much more rigorously enforced in ways that are simply impossible uh, in Alaska, in the Yukon, uh, in northern British Columbia, uh, because of the terrain, um, because it's not as densely populated, and it's the the irony being that sometimes we think of the Canadian, the U.S. Canada border is just there's nothing going on. It's very quiet, like it's our peaceful border. Um, and when we think of you know border policing and enforcement and some of the 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 violence of exercising state power, we usually associate that with the southern border. But as you and you know, lots of other recent historians have shown. Um, some of the quiet border um, stereotype may apply for portions of the U.S.-Canada border, but once you get out there to the coast and then are extending that into these maritime spaces, it is just a mess of stuff happening. It's so dynamic. There's commerce, there's immigration, there's illegal immigration, there's, uh, you know, during prohibition, there's 
bootlegging. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff happening uh, on this very far western edge of the border. It's it's a real dynamic region. It's a very dynamic border. And I think in its own way, it's as rich as those of the Southwest. Um, there are a lot of different indigenous cultures and it was a very rich borderlands region before any outsiders ever arrived. So there's so much to be plumbed and explored. There's also the legacy of the Russian. Um, there's the Spanish left an imprint. And then there's the tension between um, Britain and America over where these borders were going to be drawn and the like. And I think even more interesting and yet to be plumbed um, is the history of like people who arrive from across the Pacific and come into contact with people whose ancestors were already originally from various countries in Europe. And um, many people from many different parts of the world are ending up here. And then um, the power of the state on one hand um, makes itself felt, but you also have indigenous people, you have Japanese people, and this is part of what I write about in the book, who are repositioning themselves in ways that make sense to them in terms of the mix of obstacle and opportunity that is created by inscribing these borders across uh, this region and without reference to indigenous borders. So indigenous people are being impacted in different ways and nation states are trying to impose a national identity on the indigenous people who live there. Um, in Canada, interestingly enough, um, indigenous people are simply assumed to be British subjects. And sometimes you have people who say, oh, well, that's a good thing. You know, um, they were included from the beginning. But what people don't take into account is that what goes hand in hand for that is the denial, the blanket denial of their own sovereignty. And um, yeah, in the States, it's a little bit of a more complicated story, as we know, having been trained as Western historians. Yeah, yeah. first the Dawes Act and then what's called the Indian Citizenship Act in Hawaii. Yeah. Yeah. Which we're coming up on the the uh, hundred year uh, anniversary of uh, pretty quick here. Um, well, this is your second book that focuses on the region and on these you know, top, these intersections of race, ethnicity, labor, law. Um, what drew you to this, these topics generally? Okay, well, um, one of the things was um, my first book, uh, which was based in part on experiences I had had in a as a child, where I saw people around me treating people descended from outcast groups differently than they did other Japanese. And um, I saw quite some quite extreme expressions of that prejudice when I was a kid in Japan. And so that was a key focus of my first book. And what I came to realize when I was um, researching, writing my first book, is that these ideas about outcast status also uh, provide a language for understanding white racism when people come to North America. You see Japanese immigrants equating the two. So white racism isn't offensive only because people are saying, oh, you're of a different race. And there's actually people who are very proud to be Japanese and don't want to be white at all. So that insult doesn't always stick. 
Um, but they are treating us as equivalent outcasts, really resonance. And so that was the focus of my first book, um, taking a look at how this idea of outcast status shaped relations within Japanese immigrant communities. For example, choices they made about the kind of work that they wanted to do weren't just a function of um, law developed in Canada or um, in the United States. It was also a function of what they signified uh, in Japanese cultural context to do a certain kind of work. Um, and then there's the fact that it provides this framework for understanding white racism. And that also let me explore um, racially discriminate discriminatory provisions in the law in both Canada and the United States and the like. And it was while I was researching that book that I came to realize that Japanese sometimes also had very complex ideas rooted um, in Japanese history and Japanese culture about indigenous people. It was something I really wanted to follow up on, but you can only do so much in any one book. And I thought I had taken on enough in that first book. And I thought, this is something I want to look at in my next book. And um, so that's really where it started. I already had some of the materials from research I'd done in Japan. And um, so I was interested in encounters between Japanese immigrants and indigenous people. That was really the beginning. And it takes off in some different directions as books so often do. Um, and again, discriminatory policy imposed both on indigenous people and on Japanese immigrants um, is a huge factor. And another thing I got really interested in were points of comparison between Canada and the United States. So, um, the body of law that's imposed on indigenous people by both governments, for example. So what we call federal Indian law in the States and what we call Aboriginal law in Canada um, has common roots in British colonial policy. For example, the Royal Proclamation of, um, of 1767 is critical in both countries in terms of establishing the basic principles that structured um, these bodies of law in both countries. So for example, the principle that um, you have to require indigenous territory through treaty. And one of the things that actually intrigued me so much about both BC and Alaska is this is a principle that's simply scrapped in both places. Yeah, it's unceded territory in BC and a lot of Alaska, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, one of the things you'll notice, hopefully notice, if um, you read the book, well, I know you've read the book, but if your readers read the book, one of the things they'll hopefully notice is that one phrase I do not use is the Alaska Purchase Agreement, because there is another basic principle in the law that you can only sell what you have title to. And as indigenous people at the time were arguing, all they ever gave Russia was permission to build a few outposts along the coast. Neither Russia nor the United States had any idea 
what most of the rest of what is now Alaska comprised. And so the notion that Russia had the power to transfer this to the United States is one of these absurd ideas that the law comes up with in a colonial context. Well, I mean, if listeners are getting a taste already, like there is there's so much going on in this in in the book. It's really it's really complicated. Um and uh I I'm I mentioned in the introduction, um, you, you do a really remarkable job of taking a really incomprehensible mess of historical circumstances and, and actually really effectively guiding us through them. Um, some really careful hand holding, which makes it uh makes it um uh, comprehensible. Um I'm really fascinated. Uh, you know, it's interesting to find out that you had this personal history of part of your childhood being in Japan. And, um, you know, this is kind of a side note, but something that's often overlooked in immigration history is the context of what's going on in their homelands. You know, like, what is it that migrants are leaving? Um, I mean, it's logical that we focus on, often focus on, you know, the migrant experience where they end up, but uh, understanding where they left and why they left really enriches the experience of what's going on here. Um, I'm curious, did you anticipate, uh, or were there any surprises as you started with, with this one? And you've hinted at this already a little bit, but um, were there things that surprised you about that homeland context that you didn't think of before that suddenly gave kind of the aha moments like, oh, that explains why X, Y, and Z is happening, or why there's these dynamics in the Pacific Northwest? Um, I'm, there were moments of surprise. I'm not sure they took quite that form. But for example, one of the things that surprised me um, was um, the fact I hadn't been aware of before. Um, that there were people who actually envisioned establishing Japanese-speaking villages or Japanese-speaking regions um, on Haida Gwaii, what used to be known as the Queen Charlotte Islands, um, or in Canada. And one of the things I knew was that during the Meiji period, um, um, Japan really commits itself to remaking itself along the lines of the United States of Britain as a colonial power and the like. This is mid, mid the Meiji period is mid 1800s? It's um, 1868 to 1912. Okay. So it starts about 15 years after Japan is forced to open its doors to the West, first by Commodore Perry, and then other European nations show up very quickly and impose similar unequal treaties on Japan. And in 1867, uh, the element in Japan that advocates um, remodeling Japan um, after these imperial powers um, elsewhere in the world, the very powers that forced them to open of Japanese ports to um, Western ships and the like, um, seize control of the government, as it were. And there's always another element in Japan. There's always an element that says the way to deal with it, all of this is to close our borders, is to um, you know, reaffirm Japanese culture, to throw out these barbarians, right? Um, but they don't prevail at that time. 
And so the Meiji period begins in 1867. I think it's an absolutely fascinating uh, moment in Japanese history. And one of the things that intrigued me too when I began all of this is that when I was a kid in Japan, so this would have been late 60s, early 70s, the people who were our elderly neighbors um, and lovely people who engaged with us, who, you know, chatted with us on the street, etc. Um, they would have been born during the Meiji period. And that was one of the questions in the back of my mind when I first started doing this research for my first book is what would their contemporaries who went over in their 20s, when they themselves would have been in their 20s and 30s, um, what did they experience in North America? That was really one of the beginning threads. Yeah, and it's fascinating. So during this period, and there's some interesting analogs, obviously, to you know American or British westward expansion, that during this period, Japan is then undertaking its own imperial project, right? Moving north to Hokkaido and these northern islands that had um, indigenous Ainu peoples and, so, and and colonizing there. And so we have these waves of Japanese um, individuals and society taking part in a similar kind of colonial process. Mm -hmm. And then that process kind of just extends across the Pacific, right? So it's really fascinating to think that they thought of setting up so yeah, like Japanese villages on Haida Gwaii, which from uh, my perspective here in the United States, that's like, oh, that's so strange. Um, but when you view it from Japan, it's just a natural extension of, of these, these processes that were underway. Well, and the person, uh, one of the people um, who advocates for actually taking one of the whole island and making it Japanese. Um, and he actually makes the argument that, you know, these islands are as big as Shikoku, which is one of Japan's four main islands. And one of the arguments he makes is there's areas of Canada where French people have established a French-speaking region. You know, there's people from other European countries who have villages where they speak their own language. Um, people from England speak English. Why shouldn't we? Um, establish a Japanese-speaking village. And um, one has to distinguish here between official Japanese government policy and what individuals are envisioning, because he pursues this idea, he comes up with it in 1906 and pursues it for a number of years, but is finally shut down by the Japanese consul, who says in no uncertain terms, do not do this. Um, <laughs> it's, it's just really interesting Japan just seems so far off, and that's why it seems like such an anomaly. But when you think about the Japanese archipelago and then the Aleutian Islands, it uh, from the Pacific Rim, Pacific world, uh, it's not that far off. It, yeah, no, it's much more natural. That was uh, one of the things I think that inspired the book as well, was just sitting there and contemplating a map and seeing how connected um, these parts of the world actually are. The Pacific seems so huge, but you have this string of islands stretching across you know, the North Pacific Ocean. And um, you also have currents, the Kuroshio, um, the Japanese current, the Japan current, as it's called, um, that sweeps from Japan to North America. And it actually is something on which some Japanese immigrants, it's never all Japanese immigrants, right? 
any group, there's a wide range of perspectives, wide range of arguments that people are making about belonging or not belonging. But there's some who actually argue that they have a greater right than people of European ancestry to establish themselves on these shores because they argue um, over the centuries, many Japanese fishers must have washed up from time to time and intermarried with the indigenous people. There's a big difference between imagining that and actually having evidence of that, right? But the fact that that can be imagined, the fact that there's these occasional shipwrecks, right, that reinforce this vision is actually one of the arguments that a few people put forward for, um, um, yeah, for their yeah. presence along this coast. Yeah, and another thing too that was really interesting, and this was something I really realized only after I started researching the book, is that Japanese immigrants had their own pioneer narratives. So they had their own heroes who, um, as you put it in Japanese, parted the grass. You don't say blaze a trail, you say parted the grass for those who came after them in terms of identifying places where they might be able to settle. Um, one of the things about Meiji Japan is Meiji Japan is going through the same kinds of upheavals that European countries went through when they first industrialized. And, you know, city centers, village centers, towns that previously had a key role to play in the pre-industrial economy become irrelevant as railway lines are put in and, you know, replace riverboats and that sort of thing. And that happens equally in Japan. So you have a whole population that um, partly is drifting into the cities already to take jobs and factories and the like, but that have been rendered um, jobless in effect mm. by the changes that Meiji Japan is undergoing. And so those are some of the people who come over who are looking for new opportunity and the like. This all, this all sounds so familiar, right? Yes. I mean, that, that that's what's so fascinating. Like, mm -hmm. like think about, you know, the, the Spanish colonial project was built on all kinds of mythologies, right? About like, you know, these Spanish or Portuguese bishops that maybe had gone over in the 400s and the seven cities of gold and, uh, you know, Amer and an American manifest destiny. Uh, all of these mythologized ideas about why uh, they uh, had the right to, you know, like kind of the God appointed right to expand westward. It's fascinating that, you know, that in some forms J Japanese expansion is has some similar dynamics of these ideas of yeah like like shipwrecks or and also that like a lot of the exact same dynamics that are pushing European migrants to come to the Americas industrial during industrialization and so forth are also happening in in Japan so it's not as foreign of a context as oh, I think yeah. a lot of Americans uh, or Canadians um, might might presume. Yeah, one of the things about Japanese immigrants and also Japanese government officials and the like is that they share with their European neighbors, right, uh, the notion that the land is empty, yeah. that it is untrodden is one of the words that's used, um, that indigenous people did not um, 
use it effectively and therefore it should be made available to people who were industrious farmers and the like. So some of these same ideas that uh, European, American, Canadian immigrants to the West or settlers in the West have. Um, the issue, and they protest this vigorously as well, is that they are not treated as equal, right? Yeah. They're, they're arriving with a sense of cultural superiority to the indigenous peoples, right? Yes. Uh, as well, right? Yeah. Often building directly off of their experience with their own indigenous peoples uh, in their expanding empire, right? Yeah. So how does that then play out on the ground? How do these frustrations play out for Japanese migrants um, who are often laborers working in fisheries and other industries, which I think we'll, we'll get into in a minute, but uh, how do they react on the ground to the realization that, oh, we're not at the top of the pecking order that we feel we should be, and we're actually another marginalized group? How do they react? Well, people are very frustrated at being excluded and the like. I mean, I think some people are also enormously patient with the situations that they have to put up with. Um, I mean, I think it's quite remarkable. It's difficult to learn English. And so I think some people aren't always as aware um, of what some of these constraints are that are limiting them um, as say government officials or community leaders would be and the like, or if you grow up in the city, the second generation is also much more acutely aware of the injustices being imposed on Japanese immigrants and the like. Um, so it plays out differently for different people. Mm -hmm. And I think that's always such an important thing um, to remember about any immigrant group, right? People are coming for a lot of different reasons. And yeah, we can't speak in monolithic terms over generalizations. Exactly. That gets that's dangerous. Exactly. And um, yeah, and they're responding in different ways. Um, and I actually think of the level of patience that people show, the people who are really um, have a sense of superiority also often look down on their own immigrants on class or caste-based mm. grounds, right? Yeah. Race isn't the only thing that's um, determining social structure within Japanese immigrant society. Yeah. And you also, and this is one of the things I write about in the book as well, you see um, that race isn't entirely determinative in other ways. So for example, you see um, instances where alliances um, between local fishers, say in the Prince Rupert area of different backgrounds, um, trump those between Japanese fishers up there and Japanese fishers down in Vancouver, right? Mm. So um, local concerns can at times like trump bridge some of those divides in a way, yeah. Those racial divides. And I think we need to be sensitive to the that um, these stories are much more complicated than they are if we look at them only through the lens of race. And race is an important lens. There's no question about it. And it's often a very cruel one. And um, 
it obviously reverberates even today in ways we also need to be um, attentive to and sensitive to. Um, but it's not always in that time and place completely determinative of social interaction. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I want to get to some of the the, the legal frameworks that start really impacting indigenous peoples and Japanese migrants uh, in the Pacific Northwest. But but first, can what are the main, can you tell us kind of the main industries? So like, let's say that without restrictions or exclusions or laws that are impacting them negatively uh, and, and kind of restricting what they're able to do, what are the industries that these, like the economic industries that these um, Japanese migrants uh, or some of the indigenous peoples would otherwise be or are trying to engage in? Well, the kinds of work that they end up doing is working in the fisheries. Um, along the BC coast, they come to be excluded from some of the most lucrative fisheries or uh, limited in significant ways and the like. Um, mining is another industry. Uh, there's Japanese cultural considerations around mining, but, um, it's also is, is it looked down upon yes. or okay so and, in their in their view that's kind of like a, a farther down the rung of kind yeah. of an economic caste system okay maybe not gold mining so much but um if it's lucrative maybe it's okay maybe, yeah <laughs> but things like coal mining or the like um it, it is very much something either very very poor people in japan do or even in some areas associated specifically with outcast status. And that varies from area to area in Japan. It's not everywhere, but- So this is some of the shock that some Japanese migrants face. They arrive anticipating yes. where they're gonna be kind of in the social or economic pecking order. And then they find themselves doing jobs that back home would have been dishonorable yes. or that they wouldn't have been willing to do. And there are actually um, people who were interviewed, for example, in the 1960s and 70s, um, who say things like, I never told my parents that I was doing this kind of work or um, forestry is another type of work. People work in sawmills and the like. I never told them because they would have been so humiliated to know that I had done that kind of work. And um, yeah, so that's very much one factor. And um, then there's simply what kinds of opportunities are available. Like one of the consequences of uh, being excluded from the franchise in Canada is that to get uh, professional licenses and the like, you needed to be listed on the voters list. So that has consequences. And of course, in the US, um, Japanese immigrants aren't allowed to become citizens right so it's only their children mm -hmm. yeah yeah american born well let's pivot then to some of these legal considerations so by the time we get into the late um 19th century uh the settler states right of canada and the united states are imposing state power uh forming and, and using state power to uh to draw not just the well the border, but also social and legal boundaries um, about who belongs, who doesn't, who has what rights, and who doesn't. Um, walk us through some of the uh, some of the key kind of legal developments that 
indigenous peoples on both sides of the border and these Japanese migrants have to kind of negotiate and grapple with. Because this is where the rubber really hits the road for a lot of your book is this display of indigenous and Japanese migrant agency in trying to actively chart a path through, you know, just this this mess of, I mean, two empires, two nations, like over and often overlapping and contradictory legal frameworks. Um, how does some of this develop kind of around that turn of the century era? Well, um, one of the things you see, for example, as the alien land laws and the like begin to be passed in the early 20th century, first in California, then um, in other Western states and the like, is you see people making decisions um, as to what is most important to them. And if having access to land is important, you see access people actually deciding to move north to Canada and the like. And you see the inverse as well. When um, people in Canada are denied the vote, and it is important to them that at least their children have the opportunity to actively participate in political processes where they live, you see some of them make the decision to move to the United States. So Japanese uh, migrants going in both ways. Going both ways. Right. And sometimes in response to some of these laws and the like. Um, one of the examples I talk about in the book up in Alaska is Jujiro Wada, who is an early prospector and adventurer. And one of the things that's interesting about him is he's claimed both by the US and by Canada by the Yukon and by Alaska. But in the US, he's not allowed to become a citizen. Um, this is sort of finally entrenched in a case that comes out in 1922, but it's already pretty much understood before then. And um, so in Alaska, you have to be a citizen in order to um, stake a mining claim. So he, has close relations with indigenous people. So he's an exception to that earlier pattern we were talking about of people who look down on indigenous people. And I think that's always important to keep in mind. There are always exceptions. There are always people who don't think the same way as perhaps a majority of other people might within their own particular group, however we define it. And mm -hmm. so he has learned a lot about traveling to Alaska is a wonderful prospector apparently finds all of these claims um, that other people don't or identifies some very major claims. And um, all he can do is guide other people to them. In the Yukon, on the other hand, he is able to become a British subject. And I actually came across a notation um, in um, uh, a U.S. border crossing file about Wada Japanese who um, had identified himself as a Canadian. And as so, a British subject. Okay. Yeah, basically yeah. a British subject. Yeah. And so he is able to file mining claims in the Yukon and the like. But he also plays a key role in um, the development of you know, certain cultural traditions, the Iditarod, et cetera, in Alaska. And the other fascinating thing is 
Japan also claims him <laughs> as an empire builder. So you have three different nations, right? Celebrating him as an empire builder. <laughs> what you see him doing is in effect remaking himself, redefining himself on either side of this US-Canada border in response to the constraints or opportunities that exist on either side, right? Um, another example that I talk about in the book um, are the Tsimshin who converted to Christianity um, in BC, not far south of where the US-Canada border comes to be drawn. And um, at the time this happens, no one is quite sure where that's going to be. And we should say this is the US-Canada border between the top of British Columbia and Alaska, right? <laughs> not, not Washington, British Columbia. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So what's interesting about that border, right, because the Alaska panhandle is there, right? Mm -hmm. So that water boundary actually stretches out uh, sort of toward the Pacific, halfway up British Columbia. So one of the things British Columbia lost as a result of all these border negotiations between Britain and the United States is a northern seaport with access mm -hmm. to the Pacific. And yeah. Um, yeah, in fact, one of the things I talk about in the book is Skagway and the debates over where Skagway would be located. And had it been awarded to Canada, um, Canada would have had this northern seaport. But for reasons I talk about more detail in the book, it isn't. But anyway, the Tsimshian um, are located down in the Prince Rupert area, basically. Um, so really halfway up the BC, well, halfway up BC, <laughs> northernmost point on the BC coast, as yeah. it were. Yeah. And initially, when these borders are established, and even the territorial boundary between BC and the Yukon, when they're drawn on the maps, it's some years before people figure out exactly where they're located on the ground. And um, so no one's entirely sure quite where it's located. But what's clear is that where their main village was at the time that they came into contact um, with these um, British missionaries. missionaries. Right? Yeah. yeah. Um, that area was within BC. And BC starts to implement this reserve policy. It wants to restrict them to a reserve. And um, indigenous people in BC are very proactive about resisting the imposition. Um, of this reserve policy and the like. And when BC government officials come to them and say, oh, well, you know, this is now all the Queensland and um, she wants to award you a reserve you, that will allow your village to thrive and the like. But uh, they retort, how did she come to get this land? It's not hers. You it's, know, not, it's ours already. That's not hers to yeah. give us back, right? Exactly. And they're quite explicit about this. And then finally, in what is in effect, I think, an act of resistance to this reserve policy, um, they negotiate and the, the missionary who um, they are most closely identified with 
works with them in this regard back in Washington, D.C., um, they negotiate um, a move to an area that's thought to be within Alaska. There's rumors for a number of years that it might actually still be in D.C., but it turns out it is in Alaska. And they want to establish a community there. And then they run into some of the same kinds of complexities that you explored in your book down along the U.S.-Mexico border, right? Um, there's these categories of immigrant and in, indigene, if you will, to use the language of the time. And um, although they had negotiated um, this move and were assured that they would be allowed to establish a community there, all of a sudden they run up against changing US law and policy um, in this context. And so it turns out the president no longer has the power to establish a reserve on their behalf. They have to go to Congress, but then you run into the Dawes Act. If they immigrated as individuals, well, maybe they could be allotted land, but they don't want to, they want to immigrate as Community, yeah, and they've they've adopted Western ways. I mean, if you look at the photograph in the book of the little town that they built, it looks like you know neat square houses, very much in the European tradition. Um, but they want to live as community, and so they remain um, to quote unquote Indian, right? Um, um, <laughs> yeah, I have a big yeah. footnote in my book about the Tsimshan and yeah, this the entire village moving to, to Met, what's Metlakatla is where they mm -hmm. end up. Um, it's one of the very yeah very few examples of uh, well, as I write in my book about Native peoples coming into the U.S., but this one specifically of an entire community in mass. It's very mm -hmm. very unique story but fascinating yeah that this exercise of indigenous agency where there's two nations these two settler nations who are imposing different legal frameworks and they decide you know we are going to take advantage of this discrepancy right and we actually maybe like uh circumstances on the other side better it turns out to be more complicated than they imagined but um, yeah and and one of the interesting things as well right is this whole thing about citizenship in the u.s and how it's linked to race. So because they're regarded as British subjects and British subjects generally would be allowed to immigrate to the US, right? You'd think they might be home free, but the problem is race. Um, so this race-based law that um, um, denies people who aren't of European ancestry, the ability to become citizens starts to loom as well. And there's actually a case that links um, the cases that deny citizenship to Japanese or Chinese immigrants, to indigenous people born um, across the border, right? Um, because they lack the adequate percentage as it were of European ancestry. And you see American officials also expressing anxiety about granting them citizenship as an exception because it might erode the bar against admitting Japanese and Chinese immigrants to citizenship. And you see the um, same thing on the BC side of the border 
where you see BC officials expressing anxiety about allowing Japanese immigrants to vote, because then it might erode the bar against allowing Indigenous people to vote. Oh, so man. there was this incredibly complicated and interesting interplay on both sides of the border. Um, and at times you see coordination across the border. For example, Mackenzie King, um, when he um, conducts an inquiry into Japanese and Chinese immigration um, early in the 20th century, he assures his American um, counterpart at dinner one night that um, what his commission will end up finding is that there need to be restrictions on Japanese immigration. Um, and from a legal perspective, right, you don't reach a conclusion until you've heard all the evidence. The commission is still underway, but um, yeah, he assures American immigration officials that, you know, they're gonna do the same thing and start imposing limits on Japanese immigration. Well, this is a great example of kind of where we started this idea that on the edges of empire where sometimes state power is really at its limit is where the state then ends up ex most aggressively exerting certain forms of power um mm -hmm. and that's where the in many ways the state is i mean this is getting a little ternarian you know if we think about i don't I'm trying to remember how many episodes has it been since I've invoked the name of Frederick Jackson Turner. I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, you know, this idea that it's out on the edge where state formation and cultural identity and all that is really forged. Um, the, these are, it's, it's all happening all over again, right? But way up here, kind of for many people off the map, you know, in the Pacific Northwest, that's where the state is really, in some ways, doing the really messy work of, 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 citizenship and of, of regulating who who belongs who doesn't on the other hand though there's also space for the unexpected to occur and just to give you one more example um there's a man named Arichika Ikeda who um establishes a copper mine on Haida Gwaii in the early 1900s and it becomes a place um where they celebrate both the emperor's birthday and Japanese emperor's birthday. And um, they celebrate Canada Day. Um, and even the Prince Rupert um, newspaper that argued um, vigorously against Japanese immigration and Japanese laborers participating in the local economies and the like come to admire Ikeda and this mine that he builds. He regularly has visitors from a nearby community of settlers of European ancestry and the like village um, visit his um, place, which is actually described as a Japanese village uh, mm -hmm. by one of the Japanese visitors to the mine and the like. And so it's this kind of surprising moment that runs counter to our assumptions about how race played out, how um, powerful the law was to determine interpersonal relations 
in this particular locale. It may be partly because it's quite remote. It's about 90 miles off the coast of mainland BC. So that may have been a factor. But um, in this region, there is also space where, yeah, the unexpected can occur, right? The surprise yes. can occur. And where you see the limits of state power and not simply its ability um, to impose constraints, right? And you see that partly through the strategies of indigenous people or Japanese immigrants or the like in response to it, yeah. Yeah, it's an area where they're able, and this happens across, you know, all, all borders and borderlands. These are often areas where people do have a little bit more flexibility if it's more remote, it's far from the center of power to negotiate and to carve out spaces for themselves, which creates the very kind of sense of uh, nervousness and insecurity mm -hmm. for the state that then causes them to then sometimes come in and say, oh, we need to impose order because it's chaos out here, right? Um, it uh, also gives rise to these rumors about Japan, like Japan is pushing out into the North Pacific, not, I think, with any intention of formally colonizing North America. I mean, we learned that from that consul that shuts down mm -hmm. the immigrant who wanted to establish a Japanese village and the like. Um, but they are interested in asserting themselves as a Pacific power. They um, want a fair share of the marine resources of the North Pacific, marine mammals, fish of various kinds, et cetera. And partly to feed a growing population, partly I think because they're already moving into Northern China and Manchuria and the like, um, because there are lucrative um, opportunities there as well. There are many, many millions of people that need food there as well. Yeah. So for the colonial resource extraction, this is kind of in the, I mean, you know, we're, we're exerting the Monroe Doctrine saying this hemisphere is our backyard, don't mess with it. Japan does a sim is doing this in response as a various kind of similar rhetoric at the same time. But in their view, their backyard extends across that northern arc of the Pacific. Um, and they are a Pacific nation, you know, there's yeah. no ways about it. And one of the reasons they don't have more uh, marine mammal resources, for example, in their immediate area is because those populations were devastated uh, in the late 1700s, throughout the 1800s, by British and American um, vessels and yeah. the like. And so... Um, there are people who say directly, you know, we deserve a larger share of these marine mammal resources further out in the Pacific because of that, etc. So, um, yeah, and it's because they're appearing more frequently in the North Pacific and the like, in part, that there's this groundswell of rumor about Japanese spies, about illicit landings and the like. And it's not that they never occur. For example, there's a group that arrives in the late 1800s in Canada and, and again in the early 1900s, and they smuggle themselves ashore thinking that um, otherwise they would be stopped. What they don't realize is the law in Canada at that point in time only says you have to report to an immigration inspector. So 
they didn't need to worry, right? Mm -hmm. um, but these rumors of spying, even Wada comes to be accused of being a spy because he has these detailed maps of Alaska. Well, he's well, of course he does, because exactly. <laughs> and um, and so this then feeds or at least naturalizes, if you will, the idea when the Second World War actually breaks out, that these people, many of whom have been living in North America, in Canada, or the United States for decades, suddenly pose a danger. Yeah. And even more absurd is the idea that their kids or their grandkids pose a danger, right? But in spite of the fact that military authorities on both sides of the border recognize that they essentially don't, and the few people who are arguably exceptions have already been arrested and combined, right? Despite that, they engage in this wholesale forced removal of people of Japanese ancestry from the coast and like. So that's very much tied in, I think, to this earlier dynamic, this earlier history. That's fascinating. I mean, we we barely even scratched the surface, but we're like, we're we're out of time basically. But um, you, you do a lot of work of kind of about the dip about maritime spaces uh, and the fisheries and how we think about borderland, terrestrial versus maritime borderlands differently. As you've kind of hinted here, you, you do take the story all the way through World War II for your final chapter. Um, there's just so much here. Um, this is the problem when uh, when I feature books that uh, are really interesting, it's hard to really uh, cover, you know, barely so even kind. a bit of it. <laughs> You're very, very kind. <laughs> I um, well, thank you so thanks so much for spending some time um, with us, and congrats on the book. Um, uh, I hope it. I, I'm assuming it's being very well received. I truly enjoyed it. Thank you so very much. It was so much fun to research and write, and I hope people enjoy reading it as well. I tried to keep it accessible um, to readers of all backgrounds. Right, I tried not to get too technical in it and to foreground the stories that illustrate these larger dynamics that we've been talking about. Well, I think you succeeded, so job well done. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much, Andrea, and hopefully uh, we'll cross paths soon. I hope so too. All right, take care. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you'll subscribe and listen every month. Please leave us a review on whatever app or platform you're listening through or follow us on Facebook at Writing Westward Podcast, or on Twitter at Writing West, where you can get updates and leave comments. Writing Westward is a production of the Charles Red Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University. We're an interdisciplinary research center that supports academic research and the promotion of public understandings about the North American West. We host regular public lectures, which we live stream, have an annual funding cycle with award, grant, and fellowship categories that nearly anyone researching or working on the region from any disciplinary approach or towards any final product can apply. Learn more at redcenter.byu.edu. That's R-E-D-D -D Center. Our theme music was provided by local Utah composer Micah Dahl Anderson. Find him at Micah, D-A-H-L, Dahl, Anderson, with an O, dot com. I'll put a link in the episode description. My name is Brendan Rensink. I serve as the podcast host, producer, and just about everything else. So you can direct any praise or critique my way. 
I'm author and editor of a number of books on the West, borderlands, native peoples, genocide studies, religion, and the environment. Recently, my book, Native But Foreign, Indigenous Immigrants and Refugees in the North American Borderlands, published by Texas A&M University Press in 2018, won the Best Historical Nonfiction Book Award from the Western Writers of America. In an anthology I co-edited with P. Jane Hafen, entitled Essays on American Indian and Mormon History, published by the University of Utah Press in 2019, won the Metcalf Best Anthology Book Prize from the John Whitmer Historical Association. Here at the Red Center, I'm also general editor and project manager of a great digital history, uh, public history project named Intermountain Histories. It's a free mobile app and website, uh, intermountainhistories.org, that curates student-researched and written micro-histories of the region, complete with archival photos, bibliographies, and more. To contact me about the podcast, my own research, or anything else, head to bwrensink, that's R-E-N-S-I-N-K, Org, or follow me on Twitter at Brendan W. Rensick. Until next month, be well, be curious, and be kind. Cheers. <laughs>